as we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your Spirit and illuminate your Word so that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for us as the branches of your Son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Let your face shine on us in Christ so that we may be saved. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's Word, the book of Mark, chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. If you're using most, many of the Pew Bibles have that on page 1069. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 5 at verse 21. So we're going to begin our reading at Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and read through verse 34. And that'll be our text for this morning. Mark chapter 5, beginning our reading at verse 21. And let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made made well and live. And he went with him. The great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Maybe you're thinking, we just ended at the good part. You should have kept reading. And well, Lord willing, we'll we'll go on to the next part of the story uh, next week. But this is probably enough for us to consider and an important part of our reflection on the ever-increasing miracles of Jesus. Uh, This is two instances of people that Jesus rescues from the precipice of death. Um, And this is an important reflection on uh, death and of our Lord's power over death. Uh, In the medieval era, people made a practice of reflecting on death. You could hardly avoid it. The mortality rates were so high. Um, But they would reflect on death, and there came to be a Latin phrase that was used for people to remember that they were going to die. In Latin, it was memento mori, which essentially meant remember that you will die. 
Um, there was a necessity of reflecting on death. Uh, reflecting on death in the midst of life. We have a kind of memento mori, a kind of remembrance of death in our form for infant baptism. Uh, There's a prayer at the end of our baptism form that's a very rich form. It's a very rich prayer in many ways, but at the end of that prayer for our children who've just been baptized, we pray that they would cling to Christ in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love, And that they being comforted in thee may leave this life, which is nothing but a constant death. And at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ thy Son. It's a sobering remembrance that this life is nothing but a constant death. Our new form maybe smooths that out a little bit by saying it's a constant struggle with the power of sin. Uh, But it amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? This life is nothing but a constant death. And we have to remember that. We have to face that reality and and recognize when we face it that this is not the way the Lord made the world. The world was not made to have death be, our lives be a constant death. The Lord made life to be a constant life. It's sin that's brought this into the world. It's brought decay and death into the world. Adam and Eve didn't die the day they sinned, but they started down the road to death. Their lives changed in that moment. When sin entered in, it became a life that was a life of constant life and became a life of constant death. It was approaching always an end. Human sin has brought decay into the world such that decay and death are now the enemy of every person on the face of the earth. In our passage, we see two people presented to us who are in the grips of this decay, this poor dying little girl and this poor afflicted woman. They both have decay that is worsening. Um, It's worsening to the point of death, and in them we should see ourselves, all who share in this life, that is nothing but a constant death. They say, well, this is an encouraging thing to think about on the first Sunday of Advent. Do we really need to think about death? Yes, we do, because in the face of death, what are we confronted with in this passage? Who enters in in the face of death and decay? It's Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of life. God's people need not just to confront the the reality of death, but the one in whom we hope in the face of death the one who shows us in this passage powerfully that he has the power to confront and conquer the decay of the human race and has power over it. And that's what we want to see in this passage as Mark tells it to us. What do we see here as we see this struggle with life that is nothing but a constant death and Christ showing his power over it? Well, first we see the reality of decay presented to us in the people of this passage. And then we see the response of faith that's demonstrated by the people in this passage. And finally, we see the rescue of Christ who comes to the aid of those who are in the grips of death. And that's how we want to think about this passage today, the reality of decay, the response of faith, and the rescue of Christ. We're confronted by the reality of decay. Mark sketches the the return of Jesus from the other side of the lake. You remember that he crossed over from here to go over to the Gerasenes where he had driven out uh, the legion of demons from the demon-possessed man, and he is now returning again to the other side, probably again to Capernaum, although Mark doesn't tell us that for sure. And once again, Jesus is greeted by this great crowd of people. 
you remember there was a great crowd when he left, and now there's a great crowd again when he comes back. And Mark describes this great crowd and describes one man in particular coming out of this crowd to approach Jesus. We read about Jairus in verses 22 and 23 of our passage. He comes to Jesus. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. This is exactly how Jesus was approached by the demon-possessed man. He saw him from afar, he came to him, he fell down before him, and he implored him earnestly. Um, Of course, in the grip of the demons, what he implored Jesus earnestly for was to leave him alone. Uh, But what does this man plead? Not leave me alone, come with me. Um, I need you. I need you desperately. And why does does this man need Jesus desperately? Uh, He says that his little daughter is on the point of death. His little daughter is on the point of death. Uh, Verse 42 will tell us that she was 12 years old. Um, And calling her his little daughter not just conveys her age, but something of the affection the father has for his daughter. We might translate it with something like, my dear little daughter is at the point of death. Um, It's hard to imagine the anguish that this father must have been going through. It's, it's so stark in Greek, um, really woodenly translated, it would just be, she has finally. She, she's, she's at the, the end, sort of like when a doctor comes and tells us, you know, it's not going to be long now about someone. Um, she, she's at the point of death. She's at the end, right on the precipice of going over. Uh, that's the reality we are presented with for this poor little girl. And in the crowd, there's another person struggling with the reality of this kind of death, not a woman who's 12 years old, but a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. She's been suffering with some kind of flow of blood, some kind of bleeding. Mark doesn't tell us what kind exactly that is. We're not told exactly what her condition is, but we are told the extent of it in verse 26. Uh, She'd suffered much under many doctors, many painful attempts to stop whatever she was facing. She had spent all the money she had trying to treat this problem, and she has gotten no better for all her efforts. And what does Mark tell us? She's getting worse. Not only is she not improving, but she's getting worse. Um, And these are two people that are caught in the grip of the onrush of death. Right? There's nothing they can do to stop the problems that they are having. And the next step is death. We are sensing these people that, have this, that are caught in this grip, the inevitable downward pull of death in this passage. And so it presents us with the question, where in the face of death do you go? Uh, what, what hope is there? How, how do you deal with this situation? And the passage not only raises that question for us, but it also answers the question for us. Where do you go in the face of the the inexorable pull of death? You go to Jesus. That's what these people do in the face of death. They look to Jesus. The passage shows us the reality of decay, but it also shows us the response of faith. These people go to Jesus. What do they do? They seek Him. They seek after Him. Jairus seeks him, imploring him to come and lay his hands on his daughter in the confidence that if Jesus does, what will happen? She will be made well and live. That's what he says. That's the confidence in which he comes 
to Jesus. The same thing with the woman who's afflicted in her disease. We're given a window into what she was thinking. She had heard the reports concerning Jesus. She had heard of his great power, how the crowds pressed in around him, and even people who just touched him were healed. And she says to herself, if I just touch his garments, what will happen? I will be made well. You see how both of these people come seeking Jesus and not just seeking him, but trusting in him completely? What will happen if I come to Jesus? We will be made well. In the face of death, what happens if we come to Jesus? We will be made well. He will make us well. He will heal us. That's the certainty with which these people come to Jesus in this story, seeking him and trusting him that he will make them well. And in, in, interestingly, in Greek, that same word that is translated rightly here, healing, in other contexts can mean rescue or it can mean saving. Um, and it has that, that flexibility it can mean. So it doesn't mean saving here, but it's hard to read that and not also hear that because healing for them will mean being saved. It'll mean being rescued from death. They'll be rescued from the decay that they are facing. They trust that Jesus can do that, that he can save, that he can rescue, that he can heal. Um, And so in these people, don't we have a perfect definition of what faith is? What does faith do? It seeks Jesus. It seeks Jesus and trusts in him to make them well. This is the exact kind of faith the disciples were lacking in the storm on the sea. When they were in the midst of that crisis... What what did they come to do with Jesus? They came and they said, don't you care that we're perishing? That was not coming to Jesus and trusting him. That was not coming to him and saying, the storm is pretty bad, but Jesus is in the boat, we'll be just fine. No, they came to him in fear, and that prompted his responsive question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? These people are not like that. They seek Jesus in faith. They seek Jesus in the trust that he can conquer the crises they face. That he can deliver them by his great power. This is an important definition of faith. You seek Jesus and you trust him to make you well. And we should pay attention to these people and how they respond to their decay. To how they respond to the fact That their life is nothing but a constant death because in this passage we should confront our own mortality here. It's been said that death is one of the few topics of universal application to people who are in the crowd. You can preach about a lot of different things that may relate to one person and not to another. You can preach about anger and that might be something one person struggles with, but it's not really something another person struggles with. And you can go down the list. Death is something we all have to confront. We don't like to think about it, but the reality is that unless our Lord returns again first in glory, we will all have to face death. We have to come to grips with the fact that we are getting worse. As Paul puts it, that outwardly we are wasting away. 
And you can kind of try to ignore it. You can whistle past the graveyard and just say, I don't really want to think about that. I didn't come to church on Sunday morning to get this downer about facing death. It's a reality, though. And how will we confront that reality? If this life is nothing but a constant death, it's approaching a moment of finality, we want to know, how do we face that moment? How do we face it well and with hope? You face it the way the people in this passage faced it. By seeking Jesus and trusting that He alone can make us well. That's, that's what we're told in this passage, that both of these people had heard about Jesus. Right? Clearly, they had heard about Him. We're told that explicitly about the woman, but presumably Jairus too has heard about Jesus, knows what He's capable of doing. What does that also t- teach us? Faith came by hearing. They heard about Jesus. They sought Him already, trusting Him that He could do what they were were hoping He could do for them. Faith comes by hearing. They heard the reports, they sought Him, and they trusted Him. What a great definition of faith, that it comes by hearing. Have you heard the reports about Jesus this morning, about what He can do for your soul? Many of you have. But in case you haven't, let me tell you about him. He is God himself who came into the world to take on our flesh to save us. And he came to save us because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We couldn't save ourselves and we were approaching judgment. And so he came into the world to take our judgment on himself. He took our sin and our death and our hell on himself and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, to take it away from us. He also lived a life of perfect righteousness, doing everything that God had called us to do because without righteousness, no one can see the kingdom of heaven. He lived a perfect life so that he might give us his righteousness. He died for our sins. He provided his perfection to us, and he rose from the dead to show that his sins, that our sins have indeed been conquered, that there is a life in him that conquers death. And he's ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of his Father, and he ever lives to intercede for us. And he's coming again in glory to save us. Right now, you've all heard the reports about him. Will you trust him? You have to because he's the only one who can make you well. Right? This poor woman in this story, what had she done? She'd gone to every doctor she could think of. And we can only imagine some of the crank treatments they had around in the first century. It was a painful process, we're told. And she spent every penny she had, and she was made no better, and she was getting worse. That, too, is a perfect picture of seeking other remedies in life other than Jesus. It won't make you well. You'll only get worse. You won't get any better. He's the only way and the truth and the life. There's a spiritual remedy in him that you can find nowhere else. There's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. The question the passage confronts us with is, will you put your trust in him to rescue you? Will you put your trust in him to save you? Because we who in the midst of this life are surrounded by death, can look to Jesus and find the only one 
who can save us, who in the face of death has said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's his promise that he will heal us. He either will return again in glory before we die to bring us together with him so that we never die, or if we die, he will raise us from the dead. But he will make us well, and he will make us live. And the question that confronts all of us is, do we trust that? Do we trust ourselves to him to rescue us? Because what this passage says is that he will and that he can. And that's shown in the rescue of Christ that we see. They turn to Christ in faith. They show the response of faith in the midst of the reality of decay. And what do they find? They find the rescue of Christ. This sick woman sought Jesus, trusted in Jesus, and what happened? Look at verse 29's description of what happened. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Uh, the, the idiom that Greek uses is it was a fountain of blood that was dried up. And she was immediately well and she knew it. Um, she immediately knew that she was healed. It was immediate and complete. What no amount of doctors and treatments and money could do for 12 years, the power of Christ did in a moment. She was well. One commentator referred to Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Think how her hopes of healing deferred made her heart sick over those 12 years. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. This was a tree of life to her. This was a restoration of her body that no one else could offer. The rescue of Christ was immediate and it was complete. And that's what Mark is doing. He's highlighting for us the saving power of our Lord Jesus Christ. All she has to do is come near to him in her decay. Just touch his garment, not touch him. Just touch the edge of what he's wearing and she's made completely well. All she has to do is come near him in her uncleanness and she's made clean. Because she had this flow of blood, anyone who has open sores or flowing blood would be ceremonially unclean. But in touching Jesus, she's made whole. She's made clean. It's the difference in Jesus. You don't touch him and make him unclean. You touch him and he makes you clean. And maybe that accounts for something of her nervousness, her fear when Jesus exposes what she's done. Maybe she's afraid that this holy teacher will, will chastise her in front of the whole crowd for doing something that she shouldn't have done, for touching him in her uncleanness. Maybe she feels a lot of guilt for what she's done, but it's an act of desperation wanting to be made well. But does Jesus have any words of chastisement for her? Is his purpose of exposing what she's done for the purpose of making her feel guilty or making her feel ashamed? No, when Jesus speaks to her, what does he speak in verse 34? He speaks words that are just meant to display her faith 
and to make sure that she understands that her faith has done what she wanted done. Um, What does Jesus say? He wants to put her faith on display. I think that's the whole point of verses 30 through 32. There's a way to read this to make it sound sound like Jesus is, you know, just kind of a, a live wire, and you touch him and power goes out, and he doesn't even know that power has gone out, and then he has to kind of turn out and try to figure out what has happened. I don't think that's what Mark is saying at all. Jesus knew what has happened. He perceived that power had gone out from him. He's well aware of his healing power. And his question is not sort of spread out indeterminately to say, all right, now who touched my garments? Why does he say that? The disciples make the point, everybody's touching you. Everybody's pressing in on you. Everybody in the crowd is touching you. What do you mean, who touched my garments? But why does Jesus put the question that way? Because that's how she'd put the, put the idea in her heart. If I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. So when he rounds around and says, now who touched my garments? You see what he's doing? He's exposing the thoughts of her heart. He knows what's in her heart. He knows what was in her thoughts in doing what she was doing. God doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know the answer. Why does God ask questions? to draw people out, to draw the response that he wants to draw. We saw that all the way in the beginning when Adam tries to hide and God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Is it because God's not good at hide and seek, boys and girls? Can you, can you hide from him who sees everything? No, what, why does he say to Adam, where are you? To call Adam out. So that in his sin, he'll come to God so that God can draw a confession from him so that Adam can find forgiveness. It's the same reason he draws this woman out. Not to expose her sin, but to expose her faith. To make sure that she understands. He's looking around for her. He's calling to her to come and to talk to him. He looked around to see her. He looked around to see the woman is, is a proper way, I think, to translate that. He looked around to see her. He knows exactly who he's looking for. He knows exactly who he's speaking to. And she comes and, and tells him the whole truth. We're told she falls down trembling and afraid at his feet and tells him the whole truth, what she thought, what she did, what happened. And what does Jesus do? He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Why does Jesus say that to her? He doesn't want her to go away thinking the touch made her well. That he's just so full of power that just touching him made her well. He wants her to understand it wasn't the touch that made you well. It's the faith that made you well. It's the trust that made you well. It wasn't the touch that was the instrument by which God's grace came to you. It was the faith. The touch just represented that faith. It's by faith that you have been made well. That's an important thing for us to understand. Faith is the means by which God's grace comes to us. Um, But it's the trust. It's trusting in Christ, putting our attention to Him. That's what makes us well. 
Faith is just the means by which the grace comes to us. God also wants her to understand she doesn't just have healing, she has more. She has a relationship with God. He doesn't say to her, woman, your faith has made you well. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He doesn't do that anywhere else in the Gospels. And you might just say that's, that is a polite way to address people if it weren't for the context in which this story comes that began with the entreaty for a dear little daughter. I think this is a way of Christ communicating, you are a dear little daughter of your Father in heaven. You don't just have wellness by your faith, you have a family by your faith. You're incorporated into the family of God. You have a relationship with Him, and it's a relationship of peace. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But again, in another context, go in peace and be well could just be a normal greeting. It could just be a normal way of saying goodbye to someone. But again, here, this is totally extraordinary, right? This is not the normal situation. Go in peace. Here is a person fallen on their face, trembling and afraid before the Lord. And he says to them, go in peace. Isn't that the hope of everyone who comes to faith in Christ? Comes to him in faith, trusting him to save, to know that he will treat you kindly and gently. That's what Calvin wonderfully said about this. God deals kindly and gently with his people and accepts their faith, though imperfect and weak. Although it's imperfect and weak, God deals with her kindly and tells her daughter, you have peace. Go and be healed from your affliction. You're made well, and not in a temporary kind of way. Go with the assurance of divine blessing. And we should keep this picture in our minds when we call to mind the fact that life is a constant death. Because in this face of constant death, we can look outside of ourselves and see the Lord who is the conquering life in the face of death. To know that the Lord has power. And it's faith in Christ that allows us to turn that remembrance of death on its head. I like how one person put it. Faith in Christ enables us to turn our memento mori, our remember that you will die, on its head. So that instead of saying in the midst of life we are surrounded by death, we can say that in the midst of death we are surrounded by life. There's a power now that's for us that promise us peace and wellness And that's the hope with which God's people live in the face of death. But as Paul said in death, it's not that life is swallowed up by death. In death for the Christian, what is mortal is swallowed up by life. What is fleshly in us is swallowed up by the life of Christ. Our decay is defeated by the Lord who is the resurrection and the life. May all of us here put our faith in Christ, and be well. 
so that we can go forth in peace and wholeness. May that be true for all of us by faith. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, how clearly we see in this passage our need for Christ. We see clearly what sin has brought into the world and clearly see the power that Christ has brought to conquer decay. Lord, how thankful we are that in the midst of death we are surrounded by his life. How thankful we are to know that he is the resurrection and the life who promises us peace and healing. Help us all to put our faith in him knowing it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, it's the strength of the one in whom we put our faith and trust. And so in this life, may we always lift up our eyes and see Jesus. And may we trust in him to make us well from all that ails us. And when we remember that we are outwardly wasting away, that we are all approaching that moment of finality, help to remind us that we don't face it alone. And that in our powerlessness, there is a power that has conquered over death and hell, who was dead, but behold, is alive forevermore and holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand. How thankful we are for Christ. How thankful we are for what he's done by his death, that he has destroyed death and holds the power of life. May we trust ourselves to him and live in peace and be well. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.